Hello there, this is Tom Mess. Uh, I'm the man responsible for the book Iron Man, the cinema of Shinya Tsukamoto. This gentleman here. Um, I'm here to entertain you with my insights of this uh, particular film, Vital, which uh, actually is a great pleasure for me to do because uh, while I was writing my book, I spent some time on the on location on the shooting of this film. So it's fun to look back and uh, see how it all ended up. Actually, it's funny, most commentaries I do are, uh, are on films that I have no personal experience of. I mean, I wasn't that I wasn't on set on. So it's the, it usually is kind of third person with me looking in from the outside and, and offering my viewpoints and insights. And no, no first-hand experience, but uh, this time it's a little bit different and I'll be able to uh, give you some on-set uh, on anecdotes as well. Well, the film starts off in a very, very typical Tsukamoto style. I think anyone who's uh, even faintly familiar with Tsukamoto will find this uh, a very familiar sight. The, you know, the quick cutting and the, and the quite intense industrial noisy atmosphere of these shots. And it's actually, it actually creates a kind of false impression because uh, the tone of this particular film, Vital, is quite different from the earlier ones. I think it's probably, you could say, his calmest film yet. And that has to do, I think, well, with, with the subject and the themes, which are much more, uh, you know, contemplative and uh, less about, you know, people turning into robots and then becoming, uh, you know, enraged people in the big city, etc. So he's, cal he's calmed down a bit on this film. And I wonder, you know, it, it's, it's of course, you know, related to the subject and the themes of this film, but um, I think it might also have a little bit to do at least with, with Tsukamoto getting older. I mean, he is closely going on, on 50 now, which is actually true for that whole generation of, of Japanese filmmakers who, who came up in the early 90s, who are now in their, f you know, well into, into, into their 40s and going on 50. And it's quite uh, striking to see that all of them are sort of slowing down and, and making slightly different types of films and moving away from, you know, the genres they've been doing in the past. They've been doing, in, you know, people like Takashi Miike also and uh, someone like Rokuromo Chizuki. These people used to make these really audacious, you know, very angry almost uh, genre movies. And in recent times, all these people have been sort of slowing down and making different kinds of films. So it might uh, it might have something to do with age. For those who, uh, I assume that people watching this will be fairly familiar with Tsukamoto, but for those who are not, or only a little bit, I'll fill in very quickly. He came up with a very independent uh, style in the late 80s with a movie called Tetsuo the Iron Man, and uh, a movie that became a sort of cyberpunk classic. And he followed on that route with, uh, with Tetsuo 2 and the horror film Hiruko, which was slightly different and, and disappointed a few fans of... Uh, of Tetsuo, but uh, nevertheless, um, it paved the way for his further career, and he's remained quite independent and, and uncompromising since then. He's made Tokyo Fist, 
a boxing movie with quite a difference and uh, bullet ballet an excellent gritty urban uh, taxi driver-esque film then Gemini again was a slightly different film it was a period horror set in the early 20th century very atmospheric oh, yeah. very unusual very um, almost surrealist grotesque imagery and then uh, about three years ago he made a movie called Snake of June which announced uh, again a slightly different turn in, in uh, his occupations and his, and his themes he began to delve more, more with, uh, with the human being in his pure state whereas before in his cyberpunk movie it was always about you know, somebody transforming into a, a big heap of junk So we've now seen until here uh, Hiroshi, played by Tadanobu Asano, waking up from uh, in hospital after a car crash with uh, complete memory loss. This little montage of, of uh, shots is very interesting because there's all these jump cuts, um, which sort of, I think, get across really well the confusion that, that the character has in terms of time and space. The guy doesn't know, you know, where he is, or what time it is, or what, you know, what date it is. Everything is strange to him, even, even like a few scenes before, you could see that he didn't even re recognize his own parents. So it's a complete displacement from just about anything around him. And especially that idea of, of uh, time being very unclear is really important in, in the film, because the passing of time in this movie is... Uh, Un, you know, un, uh, intentionally unclear. The guy has amnesia, so he's completely lost track of time. The past is, uh, doesn't doesn't um, exist for him anymore. So time means nothing. And with the, watching the film, you sort of have the uh, impression that it takes place in a kind of suspended time. It's very, like I said, unclear how much time passes exactly between scenes. This is the scene where uh, he remembers something for the first time, which is uh, where his old school books were. Note the use of light and uh, color in, in these scenes. The previous one where he remembered something where the books were uh, very predominantly red, these are very blue. But there's lots of shades and lots of nuances and subtleties there. And uh, Shinya Tsukamoto always works as his own director of photography and, and I think, you know, purely in, in, that, in that sense he is one of the best in Japan. Um, oh. The sad thing is, of course, that he only works on his own films and never works for another oh. director, so we don't get to see too much of it outside of his own films. There's a real creepy atmosphere to this film at times, you know, it's not... I guess it's difficult to call this really a horror film, but the, the atmosphere, the ambience, really, you know, unsettling and macabre at times. 
and of course the you know the whole subject of dissection etc and the shots of the uh, of the dead bodies on the operating tables that really position it in the horror genre but it has a real kind of crossover style to it So, as I said, the lead actor, Tadanobu Asano, who, uh, if you've watched, you know, even a few Japanese films of the last few years, you will be familiar with him because he's undoubtedly the face of young Japanese cinema. He seems to be in absolutely everything. He's worked with so many great directors. You know, mention anyone, any major name in Japanese film the last few years, you know, Mike, Kitano, uh, Aoyama, he's worked with them. And if you know Tsukamoto's work, you will of course know that he was had a very small part in uh, his earlier film Gemini, as a kind of vengeful samurai. And they actually first met on uh, as actors on a film film called Quiet Days of Firemen from the early 90s, on which uh, Asano was only about 19 years old and just at the start of his acting career. And they uh, they co-played. Um, in that film, Tsukamoto and Asano. And it is there that Tsukamoto, for the first time, suggests to Asano to work together in one of his own films. The scene just before, uh, we saw all these uh, professors, university professors, talking about the, the inside of the human body, etc. And they all ended up with the same question, which is the central question of the film. Um, where do we find human consciousness in our bodies? And that's a question that the film not so much tries to resolve as uh, explore. There's never really an answer to it because, well, nobody's ever found an answer, even our most brilliant minds. Interesting little observations about the characters and the uh, on the sidelines of the story, which is something that Tsukamoto is actually quite good at. Now, around this part of the film, we get to uh, know the character of Ikumi, um, Hiroshi's fellow student, who sort of, you know, falls in love with him, or at least is very fascinated with him in his darkness. Watch very well this particular scene and how Tsukamoto shoots it. What you will see is that, uh, for example, in this shot, you see one character, this shot also, one character who is clearly in focus, and the other character, uh, who is the, the, you know, the, the, the secondary character in the scene, is sort of on the edge of the frame and out of focus, a kind of blotch or sort of, you know, almost ghost-like presence in, in the life of the other person. And you see that happening quite a lot in this particular film. And you get the impression of, through that, you get the kind of the impression that the people are sort of, you know, alone in their world and don't really connect with those around them. It's going to happen again in this particular scene. You see this shifting 
in a moment of you know focus between the, the background and the foreground and when that happens the other person really becomes a blur you can see it now so it's as if there's no communication at all between two characters even though they are in the frame together that sort of follows on um, from his previous film Snake of June in that film that film was shot in a standard 4-3 ratio so then a, you know TV size screen and in that using that Tsukamoto um, sort of isola isolated his characters within the frame so he used uh, as, he, as he said it a one-person frame size. So with this one, you can see, of course, that he's using a much more wide uh, frame ratio. So he cannot really, you know, use it as a, as a one-person uh, frame. So instead, he uses this idea of, of people becoming blotches and standing on the edge of the screen, not really forming part of the same world as the others. The reason he decided to go for a more widescreen in this one um, is mainly because he wanted to shoot nature. And for that he wanted to shoot A in 35mm, B in color and C in widescreen. Though I think according to the official rules this, this doesn't actually qualify as a widescreen. But anyway, it's wider than Snake of June, which is what I'm trying to say. The gentleman who played the uh, the professor in the previous scenes, who clearly had a relationship with the character of Ikumi, was played by a gentleman called Go Riju, who in the West is actually a fairly little-known figure, but uh, from the Japanese independent film scene, but he's quite an important one. He's someone who came up, like a lot of his his uh, uh, a lot of members from his generation, through the eight millimeter underground scene of the late 70s was first discovered through the very important Pia Film Festival, which for over 25 years now has been discovering you know, what today are the major talents of Japanese film, including also Tsukamoto. So he is an actor in this film, and he is occasionally an actor in other director's films. And it's a kind of exchange with Tsukamoto, because Tsukamoto was an actor in, uh, in Goriju's film Chloe, from a few years ago which also co-starred in a very small role the director Shinji Aoyama, who used to be Goriju's uh, assistant director, in a movie called Berlin in 95. So it's quite a, quite a small world Japanese film, and it happens quite a lot that directors will also you know, appear as actors, even if they are not really actors. I mean, Tsukamoto is a man who does have a really uh, real acting career on the side. He's always loved acting, and he's, always, uh, he's also done theater when he was younger. But even for other directors, um, you know, who, who do not count acting as their main job, uh, they tend to appear as little, f you know, sort of little favors to, to people they know and friends and appear in their films. So someone like Takashi Miike will, will pop up in a few films and... Uh, 
Other directors will appear in his films. Of course, another very quite famous actor-director in Japan is a gentleman called Sabu, uh, who directed films like Postman Blues and Monday, who was an actor before he started directing, and uh, since made a few acting appearances in, uh, in other directors' films, including Ichi the Killer by Takashi Miki. So here the dissection scene started, which really formed the heart of the film. I mean, the entire middle section is uh, taken up by uh, Hiroshi and Ikumi going through uh, these classes. And that is the heart of the film because for Hiroshi, you know, um, it's his process of regaining his memory and regaining his personality. It's through the dissection of what turns out to be his girlfriend, Ryoko's dead body, uh, that Hiroshi finally comes to terms with, uh, with his past and, and finds everything that, uh, that was wiped from his memory by the accident. It's very interesting to note how Tsukamoto actually shot these films. I mean, there are moments which are quite explicit where he goes, you know, close up between the organs, but these are fairly short and um, you also notice that there is no blood anywhere. So he intentionally downplayed the, the gory uh, aspects of, uh, of having a dissection as the central part of your film. So I think he did not want to to alienate his audience. He had a real try to uh, you know have a real balance between uh, beauty and 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 romance on the one hand, though a very particular kind of romance, and the more horror, outright horror aspects on the other. <laughs> All these scenes in the uh, the university, uh, the hospital part of the university, were shot in an abandoned hospital in the city of Yokohama. And uh, while on set of this film, while shooting at that location, uh, it's Tadanobu Asano realized, "Hey, this this you know this hospital sounds familiar." It's, uh, then he called up his mom and says, "Mom, where, where which hospital was I born in?" And it turns out that this was the same location. So his mom actually came by the set and uh, showed him the room where he was born. Here again you see the movie going from one sort of extreme to another, first with, uh, with these close-ups of very beautiful, very detailed sketches and, and then again the, you know, the dissection of this corpse. Those sketches point to the very major influence of uh, Leonardo da Vinci on the uh, on the creation of this film. The whole origin of, of Vital dates back to um, two uh, events. One was um, Tsukamoto's visit to the uh, La Specola Anatomy and Dissection Museum in Florence, Italy. 
he was in Italy for a retrospective of his films in Turin and uh, took advantage of the occasion to have a little trip through Italy and also visit the museum. He's, he's long been fascinated by, um, by Da Vinci. So that's one part of the origin of this film. The other, uh, the other part was that he, a few years ago, started suffering from a very bad back and uh, has, had, has had to go through several periods of, you know, uh, essentially being completely immobile and having to lie down for, da for days and weeks on end. So it's those two experiences together which sort of got him thinking about, you know, what what is the difference between, you know, a live human body and a dead human body and uh, is there a consciousness inside a dead body and if so, where does it go when it dies, etc. So he, he, to prepare for, for, for this project, he uh, visited several medical universities and watched a few uh, dissections um, firsthand. He spoke to professors and doctors and posed all of them the question, where in our body is the human consciousness? And none of them could, could answer the question, which is something that, of course, informed the earlier scene um, that we saw a few minutes ago. And it remains one of life's great mysteries. So ironically, uh, this film tries to find the answer to the question, uh, one of the main questions of life, by digging into uh, the body of a dead person. So here we get to see again Hiroshi as a kind of, you know, modern-day Da Vinci, which is how uh, Tsukamoto thought of him. And it's not purely the irony of looking for the answer to life within death, but uh, there's also the idea of looking for answers to something really great and that seems to be beyond humanity and trying to find an answer by looking at something, you know, very small details. Tsukamoto once said to me that uh, he felt that Leonardo da Vinci you know, in looking at the human body and also in looking at, you know, all these contraptions and, and uh, mechanics and machines, I was actually trying to sort of find, you know, answers to, to really big questions, as he said, the answer to the universe. And uh, he looked for the answer in the, to the universe and by looking at, you know, the, the, the answer to the biggest by looking at the smallest. So that's a viewpoint which sort of sees outer space and inner space as being uh, fairly equal, which is uh, actually a kind of Zen-like view of things. Zen also sees, you know, outer space as not being somewhere, something out there, but uh, we are all part of it. The universe is, you know, our own cells, our own um, chromosomes, etc. Our molecules, those are all the same as what forms the stars and the planets. So we all form one, and if you want to find the answer to something out there, all you have to do is look in here. Uh, 
a quick shot of the uh, hydrangea the plant just before was also uh, a quick nod to the to the previous film of Tsukamoto, Snake of June, That's in which that was a kind of recurring image, especially covered with uh, with water and in, in the during the rainy season in the summer of Japan. This scene is uh, the first of what seems to be flashbacks to the past to uh, Hiroshi and his girlfriend Ryoko. But as we will see later on, it's not really a memory, it's something, something quite different. And uh, Hiroshi at first doesn't understand it either. Note also the emphasis uh, just before on the, on the, the blue bird tattoo on uh, Ryoko's arm, which is going to be a key, which is a key visual uh, sign in this film. We are slowly getting to know the character of Ikumi and, and starting to realize that she is uh, somewhat mixed up, to say the least. And she really follows on um, the characters in, in Tsukamoto's previous films because he has always taken this idea of desensitation, of losing your senses and, and, and growing numb by living in the city. Previously, that was really the... the uh, the premise of all his films and the main and the main theme in them it's the main motif in in his work i think in vital though you get the impression that he's got sort of gone beyond that you know you get the impression of, okay now uh, i talked about this in in seven films so it's quite enough now uh, it's taking me where i want to go in this film is of it's of course as you can see still present but it has a more abstract um, feeling to it. It's not directly tied to, to city life and city life being numb, so you get the idea of there are very clearly recognizable Tsukamoto elements in this film, but they're sort of detached from their previous context. And here you see the bluebird tattoo of Ryoko coming back, and we realize that he realizes, we realize that the body on the uh, autopsy table is his old girlfriend. So this idea of the of themes and motifs recurring in Tsukamoto's films is um, something that is, uh, you know, really unmistakable in, in his particular work. Tsukamoto is a, a man, as I said previously, who is very independent and he truly, truly works as an independent filmmaker. He finds his own budgets, etc., writes his own films, is his own director of photography, his own editor, usually also stars in his own films, though not in this one. So by, by being in that position, he's been able to really gradually explore the things that, that fascinate him. So there is a real um, 
kind of natural progression and evolution, an evolution, uh, an evolution almost of the themes and and the preoccupations in his film, and you can really tell from film to film, you can see how they change. And I said before that Snake of June was the first time that he really started looking at the, the human body itself in, a, in its pure nakedness. And before that, he always covered up the body and in Snake of June he uncovered the body for the first time. But with that film he stopped at the, at, you know, the skin. And with Vital, of course, we've already seen quite a few times that he digs even deeper. So he goes from a from a very physical focus now in this one to a slightly more metaphysical and, as I said, uh, abstract exploration of themes. Here again, there's the emphasis on on art, and I think again that is part of um, Tsukamoto trying to counterbalance the more potentially gory and, and grotesque aspects that that uh, are connected to um, the image of dissection. And that counterbalance is of course also present in, uh, in the role that is played by nature in this film, though we haven't seen that much of it until now. But it's going to become more and more predominant as the film continues. So for those who thought that this film was very different from Tsukamoto's work, of course there are little, you know, tiny little details in there that pop up throughout this film that uh, that remind us of the old Tsukamoto. Of course, previously we saw that uh, Hiroshi was drawing very intricate, detailed machines and robots, etc., which is very close, to, of course, to the imagery of Tsukamoto's previous films. It's funny that uh, Tsukamoto took such care of uh, trying to avoid um, scaring his audience or disgusting his audience with those uh, dissection scenes. There's a funny little anecdote about Tsukamoto visiting the house of uh, Hodorovsky. The Chilean surrealist director. In the early 90s he uh, visited with a few French directors including Gaspar Noé. Tsukamoto visited Hodorowski's house and Hodorowski said, uh, come with me. And he showed him a little um, closet almost under the stairs. And he said that uh, this is my meditation room and he let Tsukamoto inside and the only thing inside was a, a book with very large graphic photos of uh, dissected human bodies and at the time Tsukamoto said that it was far too strong for him. He just put away the book after looking at it for a few seconds. So maybe that informed uh, his approach on this particular film. We have now started to uh, learn the first doubts, Hiroshi's first doubts about whether 
and those flashbacks he's having are really flashbacks. And as the film of course goes on, it becomes more and more, more and more apparent that they're not flashbacks, but a sort of alternative reality, a kind of daydream in which uh, Hiroshi escapes a kind of realm in which he can still communicate with uh, with his dead girlfriend. Here he's gone to visit um, Ryoko's parents and come to offer his praise and, uh, prayers and respects to uh, at the altar, which is actually fairly common for people to have a uh, a kind of altar to uh, to the recently deceased. In these particular, in these scenes, um, yeah, the psychology of uh, of the characters, especially the peripheral characters, are very strongly handled. I think, particularly the character of Ryoko's father here, who was uh, played by an actor called Jun Kunimura who might be familiar to you if you've seen uh, Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill Volume 1. He was the uh, the Yakuza boss who's got his head cut off by uh, Lucy Liu. He too is a very prolific actor in, in Japanese film of recent years um, and become more and more prolific, he's becoming more and more popular with, uh, with directors. Though he's always, you know, a secondary, always plays secondary characters, he's a supporting actor, a character actor. And some recent films he's been in include uh, again Ichi the Killer by Takashi Miike, also Nine Souls by Toshiaki Toyoda, uh, Miike's Audition, also you'll probably remember him from, and uh, Sogoichi's Gojo. And in two of those films, uh, Gojo and uh, Ichi the Killer, he co starred already with uh, Tadanobu Asano. The actress who plays his wife, uh, a lady called Hana Kino, uh, is someone who started in uh, in experimental theater in the mid 70s. And interestingly, she ran a, uh, a theater company called Blue Bird. Not sure if it has anything to do with the Blue Bird tattoo in this film, but uh, it's an interesting coincidence. Tsukamoto has always had a love uh, for, for theater, and actually, as a, as a background in theater, he used to own his own theater companies while he was uh, in high school and, and in university. So the, the, the love for theater uh, always pops up in his films, usually through, uh, through his casting. He often takes, takes actors who are maybe not so experienced in cinema, but very experienced in, in theater. Uh, the gentleman who plays uh, Hiroshi's father, Kazuyoshi Kushida, is also a man who is far better known for his theatre work than his film work. Now we go back, maybe, maybe not, to the, uh, the car crash in which uh, Ryoko died. And it's interesting to... to, to Note the dialogue. The dialogue is very ambiguous about whether this is a, a, an actual memory or 
a kind of displaced sort of recollection mixed with uh, fantasy and, and uh, present time. What resurfaces here is again the old Tsukamoto style, you know, like that of the, uh, the the industrial chimneys at the start of the film. And then we go from that to this, which is very, until now, un-Tsukamoto-like, and we start to get the first images of nature intruding in the uh, in the urban life of the characters. Now this location where this was shot, this was in, uh, in Okinawa. And um, this building is a, uh, a half-finished uh, hotel. It was meant as a very luxurious hotel, but uh, due to um, financial and economical problems in the early, mid, early to mid-90s, uh, which is when the, uh, the Japanese economy really almost collapsed and went through a real crisis and this is when uh, the people building this hotel actually realized that it was never going to make its money back so there's this concrete structure a skeleton and that's all littered with uh, trash inside and they just abandoned that and they thought well it's you know there's no point in building this any further and finishing it so they just left it there and it's been there for more than 10 years now on a, on a hilltop gets kind of eerie and spooky at night because there's no light whatsoever so when they were shooting there they really tried to get out of there before uh, it really got dark it's interesting because this hotel is built um, right next to the ruins of a, uh, of a of an old castle I think 11th century I'm not sure but, um, a castle called Nakagusuku which is now, as I said, completely ruined. And uh, when we arrived there at the location, I, I thought I would benefit from uh, from being there by looking at these ruins. And lo and behold, the surprise when I realized that those ruins were once the location for a Takashi Miike film, uh, a movie called Bodyguard Kiba from '93, um, of which the uh, the finale, the grand finale, was uh, shot at that Nakagusuku Castle. And I think Mika used it because it's quite reminiscent of uh, the famous shots of uh, Mr. Han's castle from the Bruce Lee movie Enter the Dragon. Those courtyards where all those uh, martial artists are uh, practicing. The location is quite reminiscent. So there I was uh, visiting the set of a Tsukamoto film and suddenly found myself on the old set of a, of a Mika film. Here Hiroshi has gone back to uh, Ryoko's parents and where he actually says now you know that these flashes he's having are not memories so Hiroshi has finally figured that out you'll have noticed that uh, Ikumi has been following him and is, is uh, peeping at them from outside the window I talked before about how her character, especially someone devoid of sensation, is someone looking for, you know, a way to get out of her 
numbness. So she's been, even though she's been rejected several times already by Hiroshi, she's persisting. And I think what she's doing is letting her feelings of um, rejection and jealousy get to her. She sort of wallows in those, in those feelings because at least those are feelings, those are sensations. Negative as they may be, but they still are sensations. That idea of, of pain, you know, whether physical or mental, as being a sensation that's that's always been very present in Tsukamoto's films, you know, it's sort of like pinching yourself to, to realize that you're not dreaming. And it always seems a little bit strange that he would, you know, that his characters would sort of try intentionally inflict, inflict pain on themselves but if you think that you know us uh, decadent westerners you know numbed by our uh, luxurious existence tend to go for stuff like bungee jumping etc and other death defying stunts that whole idea of uh, approaching pain and approaching death is uh, something that you can find you know in any any culture in, in daily life it's something that was very present in in recent films too, I mean, take Fight Club for instance, that was completely about that. Or The Matrix, this idea of uh, preferring a, a painful reality to uh, a relatively painless fantasy. Tsukamoto was of course doing that uh, several years before already. No. Here we see again that uh, Ikumi is really wallowing in those sensations. I mean, Hiroshi has sort of chased off all his, his fellow students by uh, acting generally a bit weird. But Ikumi does simply refuses to, to budge. She really, I think she wants the, the pain. She also took off the mask to even, you know, sense it even more, which is also what Hiroshi is doing here, taking off his gloves. So he's actively taking you know, taking steps to, to revive his sensations and re-establishing human contacts especially, that's, that's important. To him, of course, now that he's realized that these flashbacks are not flashbacks, but things that he's experiencing now, to him, Ryoko still is very much alive. He wasn't there when she died in the hospital because he was uh, completely unconscious. So to him, she's still there and she's still trying to communicate to him um, through these daydreams. Here we have a little indication of time passing when the uh, the teacher says our four-month dissection program is about to come to an end. There are a few little bits and pieces of information about how, how much time passes, but still it's, it remains very unclear and it seems very kind of, you know, disconnected and at odds with, with the impression we are getting from the way the movie is, is edited. So there's this constant idea of, you know, dislocation and not knowing um, time and the passage of time.
Putin sa. The teacher also mentioned the, the rainy season, which uh, is constantly in the background of this film. There's not so much attention uh, paid to it. But again, it's a, it's a continuation from A Snake of June, which was set entirely during the, during the rainy season. So you can tell from those little touches that Tsukamoto himself also feels that there is a relationship between his films. Since we are speaking of uh, the form and the style uh, communicating its own messages, look at this particular sequence where we see, you know, the almost obsessive dedication of Hiroshi to uh, dissecting his girlfriend's body and finding the truth inside her body, and at the same time Ikumi's obsessive dedication to staying at his side and 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 continuing to feel those sensations. With that shot we just had, where. Uh, they just keep sitting there and behind them uh, the days pass by which is indicated by these students covering and uncovering these bodies that montage really gets across very well the, uh, the de obsessive dedication as I said of these two characters and he's getting even more detailed now in his sketches I mean he's not previously I think he was recording uh, you know, a human, a human, a human body before he knew that it was Ryoko. But now that he's sure that it is her, that he can still uh, communicate with her, what he's doing is now really he's recording her. You know, her presence uh, in in place of um, a memory of her. He's really recording everything about her entire body. So he, in a sense, he knows her in more detail now than he ever could if he were still alive, uh, if she were still alive, rather. Quite a striking moment here with the, the, the dancing we saw earlier in uh, reversed and in slow motion. While shooting this scene, the actress Nami Tsukamoto actually slipped during one of the takes and, and hit the, uh, the concrete ground. Luckily she was not hurt, but gave everyone a good scare. This blue sky, there's a couple of shots of blue skies in this film. That was actually the very, very last shot Tsukamoto took in this film. Uh, and it was shot uh, on a bridge over a highway in, in Okinawa. The crew had actually wrapped and Tsukamoto knew that he still needed a few shots of the blue sky. But he said, well, I can get those when we're back in Tokyo. So everybody had packed up and uh, put the stuff in the trucks and everyone got in the bus and to go back. Then at one point we were uh, on the highway getting close to a parking space in a, in a roadside restaurant and Tsukamoto said, ah, stop the bus, I'm gonna, I think I can shoot these scenes here. So we set up the camera on the, on the bridge that uh, spanned the, uh, the highway and took his final shots uh, very quickly during a, during a brief break. We also saw a few close-ups of flowers, and there's actually two were shot really, you know, very quickly in between while he was doing, uh, shooting this film in Okinawa. I remember for one, he actually went into somebody's front yard, and while an assistant went to ask the uh, the owner for uh, for permission, 
We already set up the camera to shoot the flowers in this person's garden. Here again, dance comes to the foreground and I, I think it's something to do with the idea of Ryoko being still present despite being dead and her body sort of tied to that autopsy table and can't move. So in these, these fantasy scenes she sort of has the freedom to move and she really does it in a very explosive almost kind of manner. I think that's something related to uh, Tsukamoto having his back problems and being tied to his bed for weeks on end. He said when he finally was able to get up again and go outside, he really noticed his own body much more and noticed, uh, you know, the smells around him and the sights around him. More. In other words, he was more vital. The lady playing Ryoko is... Uh, called Nami Tsukamoto, I already mentioned her name briefly. Uh, she's no relation to the director, uh, she's actually a professional uh, ballet dancer. Tsukamoto wanted somebody for this role who had to be able to dance, that for him was more important than finding some experienced actress. So he went uh, around to see performances by several ballet companies and, and found Nami Tsukamoto there, who fit the character. When I first saw the film, I was um, quite surprised by the way she had a very strong presence in the film. I mean, I, I, when I saw her uh, in Okinawa for the first time, I didn't have the impression that she was an actress in the film. I, I thought maybe she was somebody who worked on the crew or something. She didn't seem to have that something extra charismatic presence that, that actors often have, even in real life. But in the final film she definitely does, and I think, uh, of course, that's, that's thanks to a certain, I think, innate acting talent on her part and the ability to perform. But on the other hand, I think it's also uh, a testament to, um, to Komoto's abilities as a director of photography. He's always excelled in making his actresses look really good on screen. And uh, very often if you compare actresses in, in his films and their how they look in other directors' films, you will often see that they look even more uh, charismatic and striking in Tsukamoto's films. One good example is uh, the actress Kirina Mano, who played the, uh, the main female part in Bullet Ballet. And I think Ryo, the actress from Gemini, it's, that's also the case, and also Kaori Fuji from, from Tokyo Fist. They are very, very memorable and very striking in Tsukamoto's films, whereas in other directors' films, Firstly, they're usually relegated to a secondary or, or you know, third-level part. And in Tsukamoto's they played lead. And additionally, they also, you know, are filmed with a real lingering kind of fascination by Tsukamoto. That's the case with with the uh, the actress Kiki here too, who used to be a model, so obviously is uh, someone who knows how to pose for a camera. 
you know, has a certain photogenic quality to it. Interesting, you could see in the previous shot there's a real sort of Eurasian kind of. Uh, she has a real kind of Eurasian kind of look to her. That's actually kind of true for Asana too. Come to think of it, his his grandmother on his father's side, I believe, is uh, was American. So he has a kind of sort of slightly more chiseled, angular features than than Japanese generally tend to do. I think Fuji, uh, Tsukamoto's ability to, to film women in a very striking way goes back to his first film, Tetsu the Iron Man, in which uh, his lead actress, Kei Fujiwara, I felt, you know, often looked like uh, an actress from the, from the silent film era, with his very expression, expressionist makeup, etc. It's something that really has stuck with me from uh, from that film. So now Hiroshi talks very explicitly about being confused about time. Mixing up present, past and future. Note how this whole scene is shot in, in uh, one take with no cuts. Just purely staying on this on this medium close-up on uh, on Asano, who is really really excellent in this scene. I think you can with this particular scene you can really notice how good this guy is as an actor. He's quite an interesting, un, uh, quite peculiar actor too, because he's very instinctive. He's a man who doesn't require all that much direction. Um, from his from his directors. He actually told me that he got essentially no direction at all from Tsukamoto on this film. They briefly talked about the character and, and Tsukamoto's view of the character and Asano's view of the character when they were doing the costume fitting. But on set, actually, Tsukamoto, aside from, you know, um, the obvious indications and the cues of where he had to go, uh, gave no direction at all to uh, to Asano, I noticed. I also noticed, uh, by the way, that Tsukamoto always calls his actors by their character names. Now, this particular shot is very important because it sums up everything that Tsukamoto's films were about. He, he panned from, a, from a, um, a view looking up from these very sterile uh, skyscrapers, which uh, predominate his earlier work. Then he panned down in a single shot to this open sewer kind of where you know we have this which is kind of teeming with water and with life and and moss and that is the first time he's actually ever done that which is to acknowledge that this idea of you know nature and, and physicality existing side by side with this very sterile surface of the city and all his previous films were very preoccupied with this sterile surface of the city making um, its inhabitants really numb and devoid of sensation. But now he's sort of acknowledging that, okay, maybe it exists side by side all this time. So it's a real idea, you really get the idea that he's moving on to, well, greener pastures, so to speak, but uh, in a slightly different sense.
Vital was shot in a total of uh, seven weeks, which is extremely tight for a Tsukamoto film. He's a, a gentleman who normally takes, you know, four and up to six months to shoot a single film. Also because he works independently, so he can take as much time as he likes. There's no producer above him saying, uh, yeah, oh, it's, uh, it's time, the movie has to, has to be released, uh, you know, pack it up. So he can just keep going, and normally he does. For this one he only has seven weeks for several reasons. One had to do with uh, renting the uh, 35 millimeter equipment. Normally he shoots on 60 millimeter and he has his own 60 millimeter cameras but the 35 he had to rent. So he could only afford to rent it for seven weeks. Also Asano's schedule was very tight. He's uh, an actor who's extremely, extremely in demand. So he could only spare seven weeks. But they really made the most of it. They really shot completely every single day for seven weeks straight. And I'm wondering, but maybe having not as much time as he usually has is also a reason why the style of this film is a little bit more subdued. He doesn't pull as many tricks with his cameras as he, uh, as he has in the past. Note again a very very long one take shot which is this sort of circular motion around Hiroshi and Ryoko's father. And you sort of wonder what, what that's all about until this moment when suddenly we realize that his wife has also died. So we slowly come to that realization. It's quite fascinating that he would have skipped that moment, which is something that, you know, an average director would have probably milked for dramatic uh, intensity, which is the fact that uh, somebody died and was buried, etc. But Tsukamoto uh, simply skips it, which is something you could say is very uh, Bressonian, but I think again here it contributes to the impression of time uh, passing in a very unclear way and, and, and us and Hiroshi being very confused about the passing of time. So these two gentlemen have really come a lot closer as the uh, as the story went on and, and uh, Hiroshi kept visiting them from outright hostility the first time to uh, in real friendly and kind of closeness right now. That, by the way, was Hiroshi's first smile in the entire film. And I think for the, for, for the characters of, of uh, Ryoko's parents, having Hiroshi there was sort of their last link to their daughter. I mean, you have to imagine that in that case, their daughter had a final wish, which was to donate her body to science. 
which means that she hasn't had a proper burial yet and the burials have a very strong significance um, to the Japanese so for those characters it's really really difficult to have been living with that for all this time again exactly how much time is never really clear but there's even a few indications that it's already been several years since the accident up until this point so for them it's it's uh, it's become kind of comforting and reassuring to have uh, Hiroshi there despite the fact that they originally blamed him for for the accident Hiroshi's professor, who I haven't uh, spoken about so far, here he is, is played by an actor called Itoku Kishibe, who used to be a musician. He was the uh, bass player of a, um, a band called the Tigers during the 1960s, which formed part of a uh, what was called the group sound boom which is a very you know a sort of wave of very much Beatles inspired bands and there were several of them and they would have all not uh, coincidentally were named after uh, animals there were the spiders and the tigers and, uh, and the I don't know what so Kishibe was the bass player of the tigers um, the vocalist of that same band has also become a very famous actor, actor a gentleman called Kenji Sawada, uh, who was in Tsukamoto's film Hiroko the Goblin, and who you might know also from Takashi Miki's film Happiness of the Katakuris, in which he played the, uh, the father of the family. Kishibe became an actor in the mid-70s, and uh, has only in recent years become a very prolific gentleman playing against supporting parts just like his, uh, his co-star here uh, Jun Kunimura a recent film you might have seen him in is uh, Survive Style 5 Plus in which he played the man who was uh, hypnotized into believing he's a bird and in that film also he co-starred with uh, Tadanobu Asano And in another film that they both starred in was uh, Zatoichi, the Takeshi Kitano recent version. So again, that underlines what a small world the, the Japanese film industry is. back on the beach so again these shot these scenes were all shot in Okinawa Tsukamoto wanted a location which was very you know richly natural there had to be forests etc there had to be water 
and he considered several options. One was a small island called Ogasawara, which is off the coast of, uh, of Tokyo. But he decided against that because that island can only be reached by boat. There are no, um, no flights to that island, so that was very impractical. Ogasawara, incidentally, uh, played a role in the, uh, in, the God in the old Godzilla series, in a movie called Destroy All Monsters, that is where all the, the big monsters were exiled. Of course, that was not shot in the, on Ogasawara itself, that was shot in the Toho studios, but... Godzilla fans may, may uh, recognize the, uh, the name. Another location to come out to consider was Yakushima, which is a small island south of uh, Kyushu. So really the, south, the southern part of Japan. But Yakushima is a, uh, a World Heritage Site. It's an island which is completely covered in very dense, ancient, almost primeval forests. So it would have been you know, perfectly suited to, uh, to this film, were it not for the fact that no cars are allowed on the island. There is no infrastructure on the island itself. So again, that was not very practical. So he briefly considered also going abroad, like going to Guam, but that would have been too much hassle to deal with the foreign authorities. So he finally decided on Okinawa, because Okinawa is very easy to reach from Tokyo. There are, there are several flights a day. And the infrastructure in, on Okinawa, the main island itself, um, is also you know, just as much advanced as on the, the Japanese mainland. Tsukamoto says he's always had a very kind of fascination for Okinawa because of its subtropical natural beauty. He said that's for someone growing up in, in the city. This concrete city, you know, something like Okinawa is very, very fascinating, very uh, perplexing almost. But of course, since Okinawa is so well developed, you really have to search for uh, locations like these. Because much of the main island is like, you know, urban and suburban. And of course, there's a very strong American military presence. There are uh, US bases all over the place. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, one third of the, uh, the territory is still officially American soil. Hiroshi has really immersed himself in these fantasies now. He's here and he's saying, uh, this is real, I'm going to stay here, as you can read. <laughs> so he'd rather be here than anywhere else at the moment. <laughs> this shot and the one that's about to follow were shot in this exactly the same place, which is a very tiny clearing in a, in a small forest. I mean, it wasn't even a forest, it's just a bunch of trees. They even actually had to clear it out a little bit more than it uh, to be able to put all the cameras there. This is actually just next to a fairly busy 
road just to the right of this shot um, I think just several meters away there is the uh, the road you can find there so they had to stop traffic several times during the uh, during the takes which caused a bit of friction with some of the motorists and I remember one uh, truck driver becoming very angry about having to wait and started insulting the film crew. Yeah, for this shot there's another very interesting uh, little anecdote. When they were shooting this, suddenly uh, a car came driving up, a big 4x4, four four, uh, which stopped just behind the camera and uh, the three passengers got out and said, sorry guys, we're just going to have a look at, uh, at the surf, because at the end of this path you, uh, there was a, a rock face and the sea. So they left the car there among the completely perplexed film crew and uh, gently sauntered off uh, to have a look at the surf. So suddenly they were stuck there and they couldn't film anymore. So it was up to me to, because these people were American and Australian, they said, Tom, please go and, and ask these people to uh, buzz off, so to speak. So I very politely went over and asked them to please put their car in a different spot. That shot, by the way, on that sandy path was shot on Asano's 30th birthday which he celebrated during the shooting of this film. Some of the more shaky, wild uh, camera setups that we saw just before were done by uh, suspending the camera on uh, on rubber rubber straps was a kind of setup with metal bars that they hung the camera off and then Tsukamoto just took the camera it, it was just suspended so he didn't have to um, put the weight of the camera on his back which was still very bad while they were shooting this in other in other places his assistant um, carried the uh, the study cam Which is fairly rare, fairly rare for Tsukamoto because he really likes to hold the camera himself. So now that everything has come to an end, this uh, dissection class, the students have to prepare the bodies for uh, finally for their funeral. And you can notice that the uh, it's very codified how these people have to be dressed. I mean, they can't really be dressed because, of course, they've been cut up during the uh, during the dissection. So they just put the um, the costume with the corpse in this case. Preparations for uh, the afterlife is a tradition that's uh, that's still quite strong in Japan. I said before that uh, you know people still care care very strongly about uh, the, the etiquette of, of funerals, etc. And there is still very much a strong belief 
our kind of spirituality, the idea that uh, people's spirits live on. That's not necessarily, the Japanese don't necessarily see that as religious. They tend to separate religion and spirituality. So while a lot of people are still very spiritual, uh, they would immediately deny that they were that they are uh, that they are religious. So there's this interesting separation in in, in their minds. One of Hiroshi's fellow students, by the way, in these uh, dissection scenes are played by members of the film crew. Not all of them. I mean, there's too many of them. His film crew, his film crews are actually not so big, but several of them uh, are also part of the crew. And he could do this because uh, most of Tsukamoto's crews are very young. They tend to be uh, in their early twenties. Tsukamoto is not someone he can, somebody who can go out and and hire professional, weathered film crews. These people are simply too too expensive for him to afford. But he does have a lot of admirers in Japan and people who are very loyal fans. And a lot of these are very fascinated with, with filmmaking also. So he gets a lot of people who come to him asking to work with him. So he has a lot of essentially volunteer crews that he works with. This has its advantages but also its drawbacks because a lot of these people don't stick around for very long because the uh, conditions of shooting a Tsukamoto film tend to be very, very hard. You're... Uh, not exactly spoiled while working on a Tsukamoto film. Often have to go without lunch breaks, etc. But the one constant uh, in this is a gentleman called uh, Shinichi Kawahara, who is essentially Tsukamoto's right-hand man. He's also uh, often credited as his as co-producer of most of his films, and he's, uh, the man who was always around Tsukamoto, sort of making sure that Tsukamoto can concentrate on the creative aspects of making films. And then Kawahara sort of takes care of the more um, day-to-day aspects, the business side, etc. Nice shot here of Hiroshi. Note the, uh, the blue bags under his eyes. It's really emerging from the darkness in a way. There is a sense of liberation to these shots. This, by the way, uh, the, the the previous shot was uh, a university campus somewhere in Tokyo, but this shot was again shot uh, in Okinawa at the Nakagusuka Castle ruins, in fact. So that's Tokyo and Okinawa cut together into a, a single location. So yeah, you do get the impression that, you know, the end of the dissection is really a liberation for all of these characters. You notice that for the first time Hiroshi and Ikumi sort of genuinely touched. And they seem freer and, and slightly more happier than they were in the past. And it's not just for the two of them, but also I feel also for the character of Ryoko, who has continued to be a presence, a living presence in this film. Well, she is very much, uh, her body at least, is very much liberated from being tied to that uh, autopsy table and she's uh, now given her proper burial, or cremation to be exact. 
Note also the really overwhelming shots of nature here through the uh, through the windows. It all gives the impression of a sort of liberation and a sort of balance for the characters. Tsukamoto himself felt that um, in shooting this film he sort of came nearer to a, a, a sort of more calm uh, disposition for himself. He felt that um, despite the fact that he couldn't find the answer to his question about, you know, where is human consciousness, he was sort of at peace with the fact that he would never be able to find that and maybe and mankind would never be able to find that answer. And so he said that a, a weight was more or less lifted off his shoulders. And I've seen I've I've met up with Tsukamoto several times since he finished this film, and it does seem that he has a a more positive attitude, almost. Actually, he's uh, in the past he's always been very hesitant to accept uh, offers from outside producers. He's, he's he really has a very independent kind of self-protective uh, attitude. So that has led him to. Um, turned down a lot of offers that he uh, he has received in the past but actually since uh, vital he's been more open he says to uh, to these offers so it might well be that the next film we're going to see of him is um, going to be uh, not his uh, his own independent production but it's an, an outside um, film for hire so to speak He's already done two of them, which are actually short films uh, since Vital. One of them was Haze, which he shot uh, at the request of the Jeonju Film Festival in Korea. That festival every year um, invites three Asian directors to make an omnibus film. Uh, each of them is uh, asked to make a 30-minute film. And the three of them are combined into one omnibus film. So in 2004, Tsukamoto was asked to do that. And Tsukamoto then uh, also edited a long version of that one, a 50-minute version, which will, which has showed at several film, film festivals. The other project he has accepted for hire is uh, a short, another short film called Tamamushi, which forms part of the Jam Films female omnibus film. Which is a project of uh, five short films directed by Japanese filmmakers based on stories about female protagonists, which are written by well-known Japanese female novelists. And Tsukamoto used the opportunity to uh, sort of make a kind of sequel to Snake of June, which again deals with female sexuality. So here we are nearly at the end. And you get uh, Tsukamoto's own sensations about waking up from his uh, f forced stillness when he had a bad back and came out for the first time and smelled all, this, all the smells of nature, etc. That is repeated in Ryoko, who has now been liberated after uh, having had her body cremated. 
probably noticed that only one hour and just about 20 minutes have passed and we're already at the end. Tsukamoto's films tend to be quite short. Um, I don't think he's ever made a film that's uh, been longer than 90 minutes. At least not among his official filmography. He did it. He's had a two-minute, uh, sorry, a two-hour film once in the 70s when he was a little student amateur filmmaker. But from Tetsu onwards, his official filmography, there's never been a single film uh, longer than 90 minutes. So it goes for this one as well. So these are the end credits, and the song you hear is by uh, uh, a lady, a pop singer called Coco. And the song is called Bluebird, obviously referring to uh, Ryoko's tattoo. Coco, you might also know as the lady who did the, uh, the closing theme of uh, Kiyoshi Kurosawa's film Pulse. I must say that this one is more fitted to the film than uh, her song for Pulse. She actually wrote this film based purely on the screenplay. She hadn't seen the film yet. Yes, this is indeed the end of it. The end of this film and the end of my commentary. I hope that you've enjoyed it. I've been Tom Mess and I hope to uh, see you or hear you or talk to you again on a on a future commentary of a Tsukamoto film or another Japanese film. So, thank you very much for listening. See you soon.